to continue our study tonight of how to study the Bible. Next week, I will not be here in person, but I will still be teaching the class. Uh, we're going to re I'm going to record my class ahead of time, and it will be played on a video feed, uh, simply because I, I want to continue covering this material. And uh, um, so it'll be a, a video-based class. Uh, it will not be live-streamed. It'll be a pre-recorded video. But I encourage you to, to be here and to continue our study through this strategy for how to study the Bible. I have a couple of gentlemen passing out a handout tonight. Um, that if you, if you haven't gotten one, uh, just raise your hand, and I'm sure they'll get around to you at some point. But we want get, to get these into your hands because we're going to use them in a little bit. We're going to actually put into practice some of the things we talked about last week in particular. Don't worry. I'm going to review. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to take a text of Scripture and apply uh, some of the principles we talked about last week here in just a moment. So, and, and I will encourage you to do this as we... In a, just a moment, as we review some of the techniques and, and, and strategies for Bible study that we talked about uh, last week, you may want to jot them down on the back so you can think about them as you're looking at this particular text. Um, but we'll do that in just a moment. If you're joining us online, I will put the text of Scripture on the screen, so you might want to get a blank piece of paper and you can um, uh, make your observations on that And as you read the, the Scripture that will appear on the screen in just a moment. But by way of review... Let's, uh, I want to remind you that the book I have based most of this material on, the, most of the, the quotes will come from this text, Grasping God's Word. The examples, the, the, tech, the scriptures uh, may have been used from this text, or I might have come up with my own. But uh, I want you to be aware of that. I want to give uh, credit where it's due. And also, this is a tool that could be useful in your own personal library. With that being said, remember this diagram. This is kind of the strategy of Bible study. You got to go from the, their town, the, you got to go from the town of the people to whom the text was written, and cross a river uh, of, that that uh, separates us by culture and language and time and situation, among other things, to bring the text into our time. In other words. We've got to understand what it meant to them back then before we can apply it to us now. And right now we're in a process, we're in step one of a five-step process ultimately, where we're learning to read the Bible to discover what the text meant to them back then. And the primary uh, avenue for us to do this is to do careful reading of the text. Uh, this quote uh, I showed last week and want to show again, it says, if, you're more, if you move straight from your initial reading of a passage to the application of that passage, you will remain tied to your previous understanding of that text. It takes careful, diligent, studious reading to uh, advance beyond what you already know the text to mean. And so uh, uh, we, we don't want to just stick with what we've always heard. We want, we want to discover newness in every, every time we open the Word of God. You'll see there where it says additionally in brackets, if you are tied to superficial and surface readings of the Bible, or if you always assume that you have already seen and understood all there is, then your relationship with God will tend to stay at the same level. It's not just about reading the Bible and seeing something new. It's about deepening our relationship with the Lord, the author of the Bible. And one of the most critical skills needed in reading the Bible is the ability to see details. That's where our focus is. Last week, we focused on nine strategies to use for discovering details in sentences. In just a moment, tonight, we'll go to paragraphs or larger sections, seeing what details we need to observe when a collection of sentences are brought together. But first, I want to review what we should see in sentences. There were nine things we mentioned. You can see the first five on here if you want to jot those down on your paper because you'll, you'll use them in just a minute. They are this, repetition. You want to find words that get repeated or phrases that get repeated over and over in the sentence or in a section of Scripture. You want to notice contrast. You want to notice those uh, ideas or those themes or those items or those individuals that get mentioned uh, in contrast to one another. You want to notice the differences between this and that. You also want to notice the similarities between this and that. The comparisons that are made between things. You want to notice those as well. The fourth item on the list is to notice lists. 
to notice those times when the text mentions more than two items in a group. And you want to make note of those times that there are lists. We mentioned like the fruits of the Spirit would be a list. We also want to note cause and effect relationships. We want to look for the words or the phrases that, re- that reveal such a relationship that this led to that type um, uh, words, phrases, statements in the text. In addition to cause and effect, we want figures of speech, those expressions that convey an image using words in a sense other than the literal. So we want to notice those metaphors. We want to notice those similes. We want to notice those, those various figures of speech that appear in Scripture. We also want to notice conjunctions, the ands, buts, fors, therefores, ors. We want to notice those, but we want to notice them for the purpose of figuring out what they're connecting. The word but is typically going to offer a contrast. We want to discover, as we've already noted, what the contrast is. Uh, the word and often uh, will be in the midst of a list. You want to discover that. You, you want to discover the therefore, what it is referencing back to in the text, and so on. You also want to notice, pay attention to the verbs. The verbs are interesting because there's a lot of things you need to notice with verbs. You need to notice if it's past, present, or future. You want to notice the tense of the verb. You want to notice if it's a passive verb or an active verb. You want to notice if it, if it connotes continuing activity or if it's a stagnant activity. You want to pay attention to how the verb is being used. And finally, you want to notice pronouns. Pronouns get used a lot in Scripture, and the key to pronouns is discovering their antecedent. You want to know who he is in the text. You want to know what it is in the text, who they is referring to, and so on. So noticing the pronouns is important, too. And sometimes pronouns can be tricky, distinguishing uh, who he is when there's a, a story or a conversation happening between Jesus and a disciple. Sometimes it's hard to figure out who the he is, and you have to do a little digging and work there. So we, we want to pay attention to these nine different things. Now, that was a really quick rundown on something that took us 50 minutes last week. But what I want to do is I want you to take that piece of paper in your hand, which, re, which is a, a, a typed-out version of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to give you a few minutes. I'm going to give you five minutes. This is really crazy because I'm live-streaming this class right now. But I want those at home to do this as well. Take five minutes, and I just want you to look at this text and note some things in it. Of those nine things we've mentioned, I want you to start looking at them. And I'll read them off as, uh, again as, as you're studying this passage. If you notice a word that's getting repeated, circle every time it gets said. If you notice a, a cause and effect relationship in the text, go draw an arrow connecting the cause to the effect. And write a C over the cause, write an E over the effect. And so on. So work on this text, and I'll, uh, I'll remind you of some of the uh, things to be looking for. We've already mentioned the repetition of words. Pay attention to those. Note those. Mark those in some fashion. You want to notice also any sort of contrast. If there are ideas or individuals or items or words that are contrasted with each other, that, are, are an, an, that show an intentional difference, Make note of those somehow. If you notice anything that, is, that could comprise a list, even if it's just two items, but multiple items that are grouped together to make reference to a larger subject, identify those somehow. You might even draw an arrow out to the side of the paper and write them in, in, in a sequential order, one, two, three, or whatever it is, and, and identify that list with a heading at the top of what it's a list for. I mentioned a moment ago the cause and effect relationship. You want to notice um, any, any, um, any uh, statement or words that imply that this caused that. Or this was the effect of that. Also notice those pronouns and see if you can't uh, circle the pronoun and draw an arrow to the word that it is referring to or to its antecedent or something like that. Identify the pronouns and, and then try to identify who it's a reference to. 
Also notice those conjunctions, the ands, the buts, the ors, therefores, fors. Don't forget the verbs. Try to find significant verbs. Acknowledge if they're past tense, present tense, future tense. Acknowledge if they are imperatives, as in a command that you're given. Notice if they're verbs that um, connote continued action. Continued action verbs would be like, I am going, I was going, I will be going. You can also notice if it's a, a passive verb or an active verb. An active verb would be like, I hit the ball. Hit would be an active verb. It implies that the, the, the noun is actually doing something. Passive verb would be like, I was hit by the ball. I didn't do anything to cause myself to be hit. It just happened passively to me. Notice those things about verbs. Also notice figures of speech, any sort of metaphor that's in the text, anything that uh, is using uh, terminology in a non-literal sense is a great way to understand that. Give you another minute or so, and then we're going to discuss it. Just so we can start putting some of this into practice. Don't worry, I will not do this same exercise next week when it's video form. All right, I, I, don't, I encourage you to keep doing this if you want, but let's, let's start discussing it a little bit. Are there any words you notice got repeated a lot? What was that? God. God gets repeated several times in this particular text. Any others? I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Acceptable. Okay. Any others? Your? Which is interesting in this text, the number of times that uh, that second person uh, pronoun gets used. What was that? By? by? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there are words getting repeated in the text. Let me ask you this also. Did you notice any, um, one second, uh, any, any, anything that's contrasted or compared? What was that? Transformed and conformed. You've got two words that are the, the, have the opposite meaning of each other. There's a contrast between those two. Good, acceptable, perfect. You see it as a contrast, comparison? Or list. <laughs> Bradley. Anything else on contrast comparisons? Holy and acceptable. Are they are they a contrast or a comparison? Comparison. Okay. So I, a comparison on these these two things. The, the I think that's the same one you were referring to. Or you you did good, perfect, and. Perfect and acceptable and good. All right. What about what about figures of speech? Living sacrifice. Now, isn't that odd terminology when you think about it? How can you be sacrificed and alive in the in, when you think in terms of who he's writing to in an audience that would be familiar with animal sacrifices, an audience that's going to be familiar with. Um, the, the, that whole system, whether it be in the uh, Jewish faith or the pagan faith of Rome. All right. 
Do you, did you notice all of the conjunctions that appear in this text? What conjunctions do we have? And? But, okay. But? What's the very first word of the passage? Therefore. And of course, when you see that therefore, you, you actually have to hearken, you have to look back into the previous text to find out what, the, what it's referring to. Uh, in this context, you need to read all 11 chapters that preceded it to get the, the whole idea of it, because the therefore in Romans 12.1 is really talking about Paul's whole argument for 11 chapters, but we're not taking the time to deal with all that. What about, what about pronouns? Did y'all notice any pronouns? I, you, your. And uh, did you notice any verbs that were interesting? Anything interesting about the verbs? What was that? Appeal. Yeah. And discern. Okay. What did you notice about those verbs? <laughs> True. Uh, but also notice that they are present tense. They, Paul is, is communicating to his original audience, I appeal to you. It's present tense. It's also a very emotive verb, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Uh, and then to discern, that was present tense as well. I noticed testing there towards the end. That's an, that is a continued action verb. It's not a one-time test. It's a continual process of testing. Brother James? Yes. Not, it doesn't have that nice ing ending that we normally associate with continual action, but uh, but we can under we understand the pre- that word present in this context to be a continual uh, thing, even though it may not be written in our usual usual way of recognizing it. Um, so the, those are just some observations. Now, what I'm going to show you is this is from the book. If I can get my clicker out. This is, uh, this is how the authors of the book started breaking down this passage. I'm only showing you half of it right now because I couldn't fit it all on one screen. But if you'll, you'll know, up here at the top, they just wrote FOS for figure of speech. They knew what their abbreviations meant. But they're picking up first on pronoun there, identifying who the pronoun is referring to, Paul the author. They noticed that, that uh, conjunction, therefore, and they said it connects back. They didn't go into the specifics of what it connected to, but gave that identification. Also, they noted the use of brothers. Now, they used NIV. I chose to stick with ESV. Uh, and the NIV has that gender-neutral language to have si- sisters is not a word that appears in the Greek text. It's an understood brothers and sisters inclusive of everyone. Um, but they, they marked this and then connected it every time there was a your. They connected it to brothers and sisters because that's who that pronoun is referencing to. They also noticed this uh, phrase, in view of, which is another phrase that connects back. In view of what? And you notice they put a question mark. They want to find out what the in view of goes to. They're not, a, they're not trying to decipher that just yet. Of course, we mentioned that God was a repeated term, and they circled that. So you get the idea. Then they started making notes of things like, your bodies here is plural, your mind down here is singular. They're like, they just noted that so that they could address it at some point, and so on. And then, they, of course, you're noting the, uh, the conjunction here, and so on. Noticing a contrast between conform and transform, which we, we mentioned, uh, and so on. So that's, that's some of what they did. Let me also show you this uh, half. Here you can see them continuing their work through the text, and they kept that line going to all the you's and yours. They also made note, and because I split this into two, you can't really see it, but you see the word pleasing down here at the bottom, and they've got an arrow because if you go back to the previous slide, they connect it to where it says pleasing up there at the top. So that arrow that stretches here from the bottom is connecting those two appearances of the word pleasing. And then they wrote down some stuff. They I highlighted the idea of the contrast between conform and transform. 
They noted this list of good, pleasing, and perfect when it came to the will of God. Um, they noted the, the comparison of a living sacrifice being pleasing and God's will being pleasing, uh, and so on. So there may, it's, it, all, it also involved making some notations throughout the text. This is what we're talking about doing in your time of study. And it may not be, doing something this uh, thorough may not be conducive to writing in your Bible. It, it might be a little too frustrating. So the way that these authors do it is they always take the text and put it on a piece of paper so that they can chart and graph and do whatever they want. I just wanted to have, have us roll through that exercise and then see an example of what it looks like to get an idea of how to put some of this into practice. Um, so I appreciate you uh, uh, joining me in that little exercise. That's our, that was the first nine things we talked about. Tonight, we're going to start the process of talking about 14 more. We won't finish tonight, don't worry. That's why there will be a video next week. But now we want to go from looking at just individual sentences to whole sections of Scripture, paragraphs and, and multi-chapters, things like that. And there are 14 things to be watching for <coughs> when it comes to looking at larger sections of Scripture. The first is to look for the general to the specific or vice versa, the specific to the general. What that means is that sometimes an author will introduce an idea with a general statement, an overview of the main idea, and then he'll follow it up by getting into the specifics of that idea. And, and often the specifics provide the supporting details that make the, the general idea true or explain it more completely. Um, so what I want to do is show you a few texts where this happens, where a general idea is stated and the details of how to uh, flesh out that general idea are provided after. And sometimes we'll get the specifics leading up to the general idea. It can go either way. So here's an example. Galatians chapter 5 You'll notice I give verse 16, then I skip to verse 19, because what's in between verse 16 and 19 is kind of a little bit of an aside. But verse 16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh, hopefully you notice works of the flesh connects back to the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. A list. Don't miss the list. And then it picks up, uh, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, that's tying us back to the first verse, walk by the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What I want you to notice here is verse 16 is a general statement. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the principle that Paul wants to instill in his audience. Walk by the Spirit, and as a result, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does it mean to walk in the Spirit, Paul? You can just see like an audience member listening to a sermon, asking the questions. Okay, Paul, you're telling us to walk by the Spirit, but I don't know what that really entails. I also don't really know what the desires of the flesh are. What, what are you specifically talking about, Paul? So Paul says, all right, let's talk about what the desires of the flesh are. Here's what the desires of the flesh are. These are the things that I'm warning you not to do. These are the things you are not to gratify. And you want to know what it means to walk in the Spirit? Here are the things that, here's what it means to walk in the Spirit. It means developing these traits and qualities. So what Paul has done is given us a general statement, a general principle, and then gone into detail for us. He's gone from the general to the specific. Now let's look at Romans chapter 12. Again, I'm going to skip a few verses. And actually, I don't have the entirety of this um, general to specific available because it's really much larger than this. We just worked with this passage, at least the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
You get down to verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, now do one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality, and it keeps going. I just didn't want to have multiple screens here. But if you really pay attention, the principle that Paul is trying to get across at the start of Romans 12 is that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. When you get to verse 9, he's going to elaborate on how we do that. How do we present ourselves as a living sacrifice? Verse 9, do you start these, these punchy statements that have to do with practical living? Here's how you present yourself as a living sacrifice. Verse 1 gives us the generic principle. Verses 9 into ver, through, verse, uh, through chapter 13, to be honest, gives us an outline of the specifics of what this entails. So, general to specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse through the end of chapter 13, does a similar thing. You know this section as the, the love chapter. Notice it starts by introducing the idea at the end of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's ending his conversation about spiritual gifts. Well, he's postponing, pausing his conversation about spiritual gifts to say, I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he launches into the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And by the end of the chapter, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Notice at the end of chapter 12, verse uh, 31, he's going to talk about the most excellent way. And then he ends chapter 13 by talking about the greatest of these. What we have is a guiding principle. You can have all these spiritual gifts, but the, the most excellent is love. The greatest is love. That's his guiding principle of this whole section. And he's going to give some, ex oh, I didn't highlight in red. And the rest of it is he's giving the specifics. If you can speak in tongues, that's great, but if you ain't got love, you're just noise. If you have prophetic abilities, that's great. If you understand all mysteries, that's great. If you have all knowledge, that's great. But if you don't have love, it's useless. Generic principle, specific details. That's how, and 1 Corinthians 13 is interesting because he does the general on the front end and the back end with the specifics in between. So you might, that's something to notice as you're reading larger sections of text is, how authors will go from something general to specific. It's a, it's a strategy that often gets used in preaching. You start with a general idea, and then you break it down into the specifics of what it entails. Paul's the mastermind of that. Another thing to look for in texts is to look for questions and answers. This, I mean, so this is an easy one to find. You can pretty much tell when there's a question being asked. Most often you're going to encounter rhetorical questions, more so than literal questions. Uh, rhetorical questions abound in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. So let me show you some of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul asks a rhetorical question, which is, just pops out very easily. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's not looking for an actual answer. Notice these questions and notice the answers to them. Because what happens then is that Paul uses this rhetorical question to launch into what they should be doing. This is a section that's talking about a sexually immoral situation within their congregation that they have not dealt with. And he's saying that that situation... It's cancerous, ultimately. So anyway, another time, 
Oh, man, this is my favorite. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. I want you to count how many rhetorical questions you see in this section because Paul is the king of rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I count, I think it's seven different rhetorical questions in, in this particular passage. Because Paul loves to ask those rhetorical questions. I'm going to make sure my number is right. Yeah, seven different, seven different ones. Most of them on the front end. And Paul doesn't fully flesh out answers to every one of them. But notice that, that last one in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's his rhetorical question that guides this beautiful response that takes up verses 36 through, 30, uh, through 39 there. So notice those questions and then notice how the author answers them for his audience. And I uh, also want to do this one. This is Mark. This, so this is more of a narrative uh, text in which a rhetorical question gets asked. Just notice the question right here in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? Jesus asked that question of these uh, religious leaders who are criticizing him for healing a man on the Sabbath day. And Jesus did not get an answer from them. You can see that, but they were silent right there afterwards. And then Jesus goes on to heal this guy. That's his answer. It's better to do good. So notice the rhetorical questions. Notice how they're answered. The other thing notice is dialogue. Again, another one that's not entirely hard to discover. It might seem at first glance this is too obvious to, to mention. But sometimes we need to, to, be, we need to have our, our uh, antennas up for dialogue because a lot happens in a conversation. It's important to pay attention to who's speaking to who, what the setting is. Is anybody else listening? That sort of thing. We need to pay attention to the details of the dialogue. There's one example I did not put on the screen that I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 introduces the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he, referring to Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now, this is a monologue, not a dialogue. But who is Jesus teaching? I heard a lot of... <laughs> who? who? The multitudes? Is he teaching the crowds or is he teaching the disciples? He is specifically teaching his disciples. But I get the sense that he's teaching them in such a way that he knows the crowds are listening. It's important to notice who, who's, who, uh, who's being taught to. Go to. Let me give you another example that I didn't put on the screen. Uh, let's see here. Let me find it real quick. Luke chapter 15. And look at the first verse of Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is the lost parables. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. And it starts off in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Who is Jesus telling the parable to? 
initially, when you read the first two parables, he's really talking to the tax collectors and sinners who were drawing near to hear him. And the first two-thirds of the parable of the lost son is said to them as well. It's not really until you get down to verse 25 when he tells the part of the, the parable of the prodigal son that has to do with the older brother that he's addressing the Pharisees and the scribes. But in this whole chapter, he's acknowledging that he, he's recognizing two audiences and technically speaking to two audiences at two different times. It's important to notice who's being spoken to, who's doing the speaking, and that sort of thing. Dialogue does matter. Let me uh, show you a few other examples. Genesis chapter 1, verses, I mean, chapter, that says 1, that should be 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you have the serpent and Eve. One thing that can be helpful when you're doing your biblical study, highlight in different colors who's speaking. In yellow, we have the serpent. In red, we have Eve. The reason I highlight this conversation is because you have these characters, the serpent and Eve, quoting a third character, God. Serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve's response, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent said, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good or evil. So you've got this conversation between these two individuals, but they reference a third individual's words, God's. And so if you, skin, if you jump back into chapter 2 and find where God spoke and what they're referring to that God spoke, you'll find out he never said anything about touching the tree. You'll also find out that the serpent... Um, incorrectly quoted God. So you have, notice these things in the dialogue. Notice who's speaking, notice who gets referenced, notice what is said that's correct and incorrect, that sort of thing. Then there's John 21, verse 15 through 19. This is the, the conversation between um, Peter and Jesus. After Jesus' uh, resurrection, they're on the beach of the Sea of Galilee or the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asks Peter this question three times. Peter, do you love me? Now, you've often heard preachers, including myself, talk about the term love there. Listen, you're not getting into Greek. That's not the goal here. And, and whether or not that Greek word really uh, matters in this text is really up to debate. Most scholars say it does not. And that's why our English doesn't adjust the translation of the word love throughout this passage. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth looking at this dialogue. I mean, you've got uh, Jesus speaking in yellow, Peter speaking in red. Look at the first time that Jesus asked the question. The first time is, do you love me more than these? Well, Jesus, what do you mean by more than these? What are the more than these? I need to look that up. Then look at the fact that Jesus, every time he spoke to Peter, called him Simon, son of John. Why is he using that title? Isn't Jesus the one who named him Peter? Why is he not using the nickname he gave him? And why does Jesus shift between feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep? What's the difference if there is one? The dialogue is powerful here when you take the time to decipher it. Also, what's the last thing Jesus says to Peter? Highlighted at the very end of the passage. What's so significant about that? Maybe it's because it's like the first thing Jesus ever said to Peter. So we, we focus on the, hey, three times Jesus asked the question. It counters the three times uh, that Peter denied him. And don't overlook that when you study it. But there's a lot of details in the dialogue as well that are worth noting. And, and the biggest section there where Jesus says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you. That's worth finding out what he's talking about, which I believe is a reference, a, a prophetic reference to Peter's eventual crucifixion. But there's a lot of details in there in, John, in that dialogue. Uh, this is another example. Nothing will be highlighted here. But the book of Habakkuk, a little bitty book. But dialogue matters here because the book of Habakkuk is a, is a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. And when you understand that, when you discover that, 
It helps you understand the book. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is Habakkuk speaking. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. And then you get to verses 5 through 11. God is responding to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like so on. This is God responding. When you And notice the text didn't say, and God said. You have to decipher that. When it says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, those pronouns are your key to knowing who's talking. Because in the previous section, you see Habakkuk says, oh Lord, how long? So Habakkuk has to be the you, the Lord has to be the I. And, but when you find out that there's this ongoing conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord, it makes the message of the text more understandable. Same thing with the book of Job, when you start looking at those conversations, seeing who's speaking to who and that sort of thing. So that was worth mentioning. All right, other things to look for in paragraphs. Purpose and results statement. These are phrases or sentences that describe the reason, the result, or the consequence of some action. They are frequently introduced by result-oriented conjunctions such as that or in order that and so that but they can also be introduced with simple infinitives. In other words, when you're looking at purpose and result statements, you're looking at statements that give a why, give a reason for something that happened. So let me give you some examples because that will make more sense. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you're looking for a purpose, and a result. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's our purpose. But why were we created? That we should walk in those good works that God created, or that God prepared, I should say, beforehand. Let's do another one. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should be abide so that whatever you ask, that, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What's the purpose? Being chosen and appointed. Okay, what's the result of being chosen and appointed? To go and bear fruit. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 3. This one's a little bit trickier. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. You actually need a little bit of context to find out what them is, right? It's the words of the Lord. That, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. What's the purpose result here? The purpose is to hear and do the word of God. The result is that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. It's a twofold um, purpose, twofold result. So purpose and result statements. Don't get those confused with means statement, the means by which something happened. Purpose and result statements are focused on why something happened. Means statements are focused on how they happen. When an action, a result, or a purpose is stated, look for the means that brings about that action, result, or purpose. How is the action or result brought into reality? How is the purpose accomplished? These have some, this has some blending with the previous one, but remember why versus how. That's the difference. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. What's the how? How do we walk? By faith. The means of walking is by faith. All right? 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How are we saved? By grace through faith. So when you're looking at means statements, the means by which something happened, it'll be easy to find, uh, the uh, easy way to do that is to insert the phrase um, means, uh, wait, hold on, let me get the right words. If you're trying to determine if it's a means statement, the best thing to do is to insert the phrase, nope, that's the purpose. Uh, the means by which. Means by which. If you're doing a purpose uh, result statement, try inserting the phrase in order that. If the word, phrase in order that fits in it, it's usually going to be a result statement. If the phrase means by can be inserted, or just simply the word by or even through at times, you're dealing with a a means statement. Let me give another one here. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The means of keeping your way pure is by guarding your way. Romans 10, verse 17, another familiar passage. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. There's no by in this passage, so that's why I wanted to use it. The means by which faith comes is through hearing. The means through which hearing comes is through the word of Christ. Make sense? If not, we'll work on it. Another thing to notice, conditional clauses. These are your if-then statements, typically. These are clauses that present the conditions whereby some action, some consequence, some reality, some result will happen. And the conditional aspect will usually be introduced by a conditional conjunction, if. However, the resultant action or consequence may not always have then before it. Because in English, we've started dropping the then. So you're looking for if-then type statements. You might have to insert a then to help you see it. And I'll do that on some of these examples. Let's start with 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's, what's the if part? If anyone is in Christ. What's the then part? He is a new creation. The condition for being a new creation is what? Being in Christ. So in yellow is... is uh, the if part of the statement, red is the then, and notice I, I just bracketed in the word then to help it be visible. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's the if part? Confess. This is a two-parter. And believe. Those are your if parts. The then part is you will be saved. If thens are not hard to find and they're important. Do you know why? Because a great many of them discredit Calvinist teaching. The idea that you permanently have, like the idea that you can't lose your salvation. Because a conditional clause of if-then, when it relates to being saved, means there's a condition to being saved, that it's not just universally available. Let me give you another example. Now, oh, man, I love this one. 1 John, chapter five and verse, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is like the epitome of if-then statements because there are an abundance of them. So just look through it. See how many if-then statements how many conditional clauses you can find just in this chapter? There was one time where I contemplated doing a series just called If, and it would be an expository series on this passage. Still might happen one day, just hadn't happened yet. How many conditional clauses can you find in these few verses?
Anybody want to take a numerical stab? I believe there are five. John just rattled them off one after the other. And notice, so you've got the if part and the then part in, in five different occasions here. It's all conditional. All expressing some sort of condition. If we confess our sins, then our sins are cleansed. If we say we have not sinned, then we make God a liar. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with the Son. They're all conditional statements. A powerful passage. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, another example. This one I like because it reverses the order. The then comes first. Wait. Yes. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. The share in Christ is the then part. The condition is if we hold our original confidence to the end. I think there's another example here in Colossians chapter 1, where it's a reversed order and it's kind of spread out a bit more. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What's the if part? Okay, the if part's the easy part. Because the if is there. If you continue in the faith, this if part. What's the then part? I'll give you a hint. It comes before the if. Your reconciliation is the then part. If you continue in the faith, so... That's the if-then uh, conditional clauses. They, they do abound throughout Scripture. I think I've got, oh, I'm going to pause here. This one takes a little while to explain. So we're going to pick this one up next week. Uh, we just rattle off a whole bunch of these things. Do you have any questions? Were any of them just extraordinarily confusing and you don't think you're going to wrap your mind around it? I hope possibly for next Wednesday to have a handout that will list all of these um, strategies for reading the text, the sentence strategies, and the larger paragraph strategies, just for you to have a take-home tool uh, to, to utilize in your own personal study. Uh, but we'll finish with it. We've got seven more of these to talk about. We'll finish these next week, and then we're going to start moving towards understanding context, particularly literary context, historical context, and things like that. I thank you for your, your participation and your time, and, and I hope this continues to be a, a, a class that is practical and beneficial for you because that's the objective that we have. Have a blessed night, and uh, you'll see me next week, but I won't see you. <laughs>